The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome to everybody, especially those who have come for the first time, braving the cold. I think it's going to get even worse. For those who are new and for those who might need a reminder, Common Ground now has been operating for 25 years in this way where uh, the teachers and the leaders and really the community, we practice offering everything freely, all these programs, even our residential retreats to a large degree are offered freely. And part of that is this really wanting to make the place accessible to everyone, regardless of their financial situation. That it's really part of a deeper spiritual practice that we maybe can begin first at a place like Common Ground, but really we want to take it on the road and live that way in other places in our life where we practice being generous in our relationship to our jobs, to our kids, to our partners, to our family, to our communities, to live in a generous way, to really show up in a generous way, give, offer what we have to offer in a generous way. And for a lot of us, it's more challenging to learn to receive in a generous way, to kind of receive back whatever comes our way, whatever that is. So it made sense right from the beginning in 1993 to operate the center on this principle. It really is a way of walking our talk. Um, in terms of the Buddhist teachings. And in some ways it's, you know, it's scary to sort of just run a place, a a small nonprofit in this way, but it really has worked for us these 25 years. And people are just encouraged to get good at receiving whatever you receive when you're part of the community, classes that you take or whatever, just to really let it in, let it touch your heart. Oh, that's nice. I got to do this class because of whatever the community has been doing to make that possible over these years. And that feels good to receive it as a free gift, no strings attached. And then as you're moved to contribute back, whatever way that might be, volunteering or cooking for the retreats that we do or contributing money, then let that be a free gift that makes you happy. And that's really how we've been operating in our budget, you know, as you might expect for an organization that has, you know, the paid office staff in this building and we're developing a retreat property in western Wisconsin. Our budget is somewhere 300 up and down, give or take, $1,000 a year. And that money just flows in naturally in this way. And so if you have any questions about that, how you might be part of that, then just contact the office or see me afterward, or there's information on the website. There's a sheet of paper next to the donation balls you can take a look out, uh, look at when you leave today. But we're really happy to talk more about it. But it's something that each person can figure out for themselves, depending on your particular situation in life. You know, you'll find a way. But the inner sense is like, what feels good? What actually makes us happy? And in any of our relationships in life, if our operating agenda is like to get away with as much as we can get away with, it doesn't feel good. But it's the same as true like if our operating principle is like, I've got to give a lot 
So there's absolutely no way I'll be in the deficit position. You know, I want that person to be in obligation to me. I do not want to be in debt to that group, that person, that organization. Well, that's just another way to cause ourselves suffering, to sort of like want to be the shiny person who, you know, gives so much, the best giver or whatever, in a way that then we neglect our own needs or the needs of our family or whatever else that we might do with our resources. So it's like for each of us to figure out, and we often figure that out by making mistakes, like where we think, well, Common Ground's the cheap Buddhist meditation center. You know, so I, I go there because it's cheap. And that's, I mean, I know that that would be my attitude in the beginning. <laughs> Just, I, were ra- I was raised by parents who, you know, grew up in the Depression. And so they had, you know, in the Dust Bowl and the Depression on top of things. So, you know, I have this sort of stingy quality that's conditioned into my mind, into my personality. And so that, that's often the first thing that shows up for me. Oh, it's cheap. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> so that's okay because eventually that will stand out in the mind like is it really cheap it's not about being cheap it's just a different way of operating where we want people to find their own way yeah and you know it's just like I said and then you might have that opposite kind of conditioning to to sort of feel like well no one's giving I've got to be the one that takes care of everybody you know and then that's not healthy either and that will be a cause for suffering. It won't make you happy. And it won't make the community, the common ground community, healthy either if people are operating in that way. So let us know if you have any questions about that. And what I've, I, I wasn't here last week. I uh, was out in California doing a memorial service. And fortunately for everyone who was here, Shelley got to teach. Some of you know Shelley Graff, who's um, involved in the teacher training out at Insight Meditation Society, Massachusetts, our kind of grandmother organization in this lineage of early Buddhism that Common Ground is part of. And she's also our associate director here at Common Ground and is teaching more and more when we can get her. She'll be teaching with me this residential retreat that we're both leading in the middle of the month. And uh, maybe why I'm mentioning that, we are looking for community members to cook for that retreat. And there's a little slip of paper out in the near the next to the donation bowls, and it has the link to the web page where you can see what dishes need to be prepared. We have the pots and the containers, and we'll freeze it here, and we'll reimburse you if you want to get reimbursed for the ingredients. But we've been doing this for 15 years for a residential retreat with different community members, including some of the people who go on the retreat. They cook ahead of time. We freeze it. So that way the cooks are mostly just thawing and heating up the food for the retreats. And it's a very sweet way because the, you know, 35 people or so that are on the retreat, every time they're getting their meal, they see the poster of all the community members that prepare the salad dressings and the soups and the thises and the thats. And it's just a nice feeling for just like people in the wider community supporting those people who have the time to get on the residential retreats. So if you're interested in helping, you can pick up a slip of paper and check out the web page, see if something looks like you'd like to prepare it for the retreat. So um, I've been uh, talking this last week um, and then also this coming week on this article that you can find on our website or you get it if you're on the weekly email list. And it's by Joko Beck, uh, Charlotte Joko Beck. She's one of our 
was one of our senior Western Dharma teachers. Uh, she is in the Zen tradition. She died a couple of years ago, maybe five years now ago. But really powerful teacher. Um, and uh, she has a chapter in one of her books called The Icy Couch, one of my favorite chapters and one of my favorite Dharma books. So you might want to track it down. I'm sure both of her books are still in print. And uh, you can read this article because we have it up on our website. Look under Dharma blog under the resources, or you can find it in the weekly email um, where they talk about this weekly practice group. There's a link to the article there. And the point that Joko Beck is making in this short article, it's just five pages or so, is that as I try to guide us in our meditation today, you know, when we settle into our experience, you know, we might use the ordinary sensations of the breath and the ordinary sensations of the body sitting, like the buttocks on the chair or the cushion. I mean, we start with something really simple and ordinary. But to the degree that the mind-body settles down, then we start to get a sense. I'm sure many of you at least have tasted what Joko Beck means by the icy couch. Another teacher that Joko Beck mentions in this article talks about it as a hard stone that's perfectly molded to our life, right? that we learn with persistent, dedicated practice. We learn how to rest on that smooth, perfectly molded stone or that icy couch or that yucky feeling that's at the core. And the thing is, you know, we are conditioned to avoid that that work, that spiritual work at all costs, right? That's, you know, what's our biggest neurotic defense system? We're staying busy thinking about this, worrying about that. Even if we're thinking about Buddhist awareness practice, right, we can spend spend months sitting. You can go on the longest Buddhist meditation retreat you can find, and you can spend most of your time spinning, thinking about Buddhist meditation practice and avoiding doing the one thing that the practice is all about, which is just feeling what we feel. What's the feeling here when the mind isn't distracted by its thoughts about things? And you don't have to make it your project to get rid of your thoughts about things because that's just another way of avoiding feeling what we feel, feeling what's here. Dropping in, tuning in, opening up, relaxing with, trusting. I mean, we have probably... 10,000 ways of, you know, teachers have talked about this basic spiritual move. Like if there actually is a problem, a spiritual problem, existential problem, it can only be one place, right? Here. It couldn't be anywhere else. Where else could it be, our spiritual problem? But we practice as if I'll get to it later when I get my posture together or when I you know, learn to calm down, or when I really understand what the Buddha was talking about, then I'll do the spiritual work that needs to be done. But actually, it's always here waiting for us. And the doorway to doing that work that's waiting for us, the doorway is always that willingness 
to feel. And we use that term as a way of um, kind of as a challenge to the, our tendency to go to our thoughts about what the problem is or our thoughts about what the resolution to the problem of our life is. Because our thinking about our problem, our existential problem, or our thinking about the resolution of our problems or our problem is actually a defense system to keep us from doing the healing work that's available in this moment. I uh, came upon an article that Aya Mendanandi wrote. She's a bhikkhuni, um, Westerner, and fully ordained Buddhist nun. Not a lot of them um, in the West or the East, uh, but she's uh, one of the better-known Western teachers, and she is the abbess of a monastery north of Ottawa, so in the real cold. I don't know if you know where that is. You have your Canadian geography still there. <laughs> I think we're losing our <clears throat> mental picture of how things are laid out because of our dependence on our computers. But anyway, so Ottawa's pretty far north in Ontario, and uh, she has her monastery north of that. And she wrote an article, The Dharma of Snow. And uh, one of the sisters that are with her, Sister Ahimsa, uh, brother is a geophysicist and uh, so another one of the nuns at the monastery sort of wrote her brother this geophysicist about how much snow they had this is just a couple years ago and uh, there in April still just feet of snow down on the ground thinking it was never going to go away even though the temperature had been warming up <clears throat> and then all of a sudden it, as, as in a matter of a couple of days all this amazing quantity of snow just disappeared. She was sort of shocked by that and mentioned this to her brother. And be a ge- being a geophysicist, he, he had some kind of explanation, you know, about how melting is a nonlinear process. Right? And it's really about, you know, so he, he went, I'm not going to read what he wrote back to his sister, who's the nun, but really about these feedback systems which we've been hearing a little bit more about lately in terms of uh, global warming. You know, there's any number of tipping points like about Arctic and Antarctic ice or the uh, ice mass on Greenland. And is there a tipping point where the melting's going to happen really fast or the tundra and the peat underneath the tundra in the northern latitudes um, that when that thaws, a lot of methane will be released. And there's any number of other tipping points that I probably don't even know about, but that people are beginning to talk about. And it's not just in terms of natural, you know, wild systems, but this wild system too. We have our own tipping points, both for good and for bad, in the sense of becoming a wiser, more released, more kind, more engaged human being, or becoming a more neurotic you know, closed down, hateful, unskillful human being. Because this is how natural systems operate, right? There's a lot of groundwork, a lot of seeds that are getting planted, getting nurtured, getting watered. When we're completely and clearly aware 
of the kind of gardening we've been doing for the last 10 years, it's already too late. I mean, not complete. It's never too late in a sense, but there's a lot of karma, a lot of karmic fruit that's already, a lot of momentum that's already been set in motion because we've been strategically or unconsciously unconscious, you know, like sometimes that's a defense. I just don't want to know. I just don't want to know what I'm setting in motion. Don't tell me about plastic bags, you know. Don't tell me about this or that. You know, we can kind of get that way. There's all kinds of pushback, you know, understandably so, what people might consider it politically, you know, kind of toxic political correctness or something like that. But we don't want to be told about this or about that, about what we're not seeing. We just prefer to stay in the dark, stay unaware. So we it's this uh, part, so much of what we're doing in spiritual life is we're cultivating a taste for the icy couch. We're cultivating a taste for awareness, to feel what it feels like to be in our life, to be in this world, to be in the complexity and the complicity of being in our life, being in this world with a mind that's conditioned in this way. And you see why we avoid it. This is very unpleasant for most of us most of the time. Not always, but often. It's unpleasant to be real. And it's temporary, it's just enough temporarily enough pleasant to be distracted, to be in denial, to be in our fantasies, right? To be in our disconnected ways. We don't notice how stressful it is to keep running from reality, from things as they are. And so it, we kind of keep going. But then we're not aware of the seeds we're planting, what's getting set in motion. So using that, image of the snow, you know, the two or three feet of snow there in late spring with the sun warming it up. He says, this geophysicist says that, you know, the snow can even for a while be warmer than freezing, but still be there. But at some point it just like collapses. And then as it's collapsing, the melting, of course, just exponentially increases the rate of melting, right? And then as soon as any of the ground is exposed, that amplifies, exponentially increases the melting. So that's why it can go from being several feet to very little snow in a matter of a couple days. And that's true with becoming more diluted, and it's also true with the awakening process. And it's just a matter of, instead of unconsciously planting and nourishing seeds, Consciously planting and nourishing seeds. So what kind of seeds are we want, wanting to plant and nourish? Well, seeds of being intimate. Because you know, we, get the, we have the advantage of having the Buddha's pointing out instructions. Right? He did his difficult work. and the Others have done it since his time. And probably folks did it before the time of the Buddha too. But the Buddha not only did his work, but he articulated what he did in his own heart and mind in a way that some 2,600 years later, that articulation and the many, many re-articulations by the women and men and other practitioners before us 
we have these pointing out instructions now. And so in terms of like what are the wholesome seeds to be planting and nourishing so that this awakening, this liberating, releasing process can happen in our hearts and then in our communities, right? Well, the analysis from the Buddha on down is, well, the problem is human beings mistakenly get on this trajectory or this path of using denial and distraction and superficiality and the misperceptions that come from the denial and the distraction and the superficiality as a strategy for survival, for psychic or psychological survival, getting by. And we see this, right? I mean, is there anybody that hopefully each of us, we can point out how we use denial and distraction and superficiality to get through the day, to get through difficulty. I mean, just think about our interests in sports, our interests in, you know, in movies or whatever, things that ultimately we know aren't going to change our life in any positive way, aren't going to be that meaningful ultimately, yet we can spend hours doing this, doing that sleeping too much. I've noticed this last January that it's like a new pastime. It's like it's like a side effect. Like I like my mind, you know, can just in that semi sleepy, trancey state, you know, can just keep inventing dramas to keep me entranced. And now I can squeeze in a couple more hours. And then it's like there's all this press about how more sleep is good and prevents Alzheimer's. And <laughs> But I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm just spinning my wheels and planting seeds of being disconnected. That's the thing. Um, in terms of our awakening practice, indulging in sleep is not, meaning getting more sleep than your body and mind actually, that's actually healthy for your body and mind. It's just the same as watching movies and TV and reading things that we don't need to read, right? We're kind of filling up the space. And it, there's consequences, even if the stuff is somewhat neutral or not toxic in some way. But the habit of avoiding the icy couch, we don't want to strengthen that habit. We want to strengthen the habit of being right in the middle, not afraid to feel what we're feeling. So that's why we have this formal practice. That's where we have places like Common Ground. Because the place, I mean, people often say, well, you know, Common Ground, yeah, I like it, but nobody laughs there, or nobody talks, and, you know, they're just quiet, they look so serious. Because partly the place exists as a symbol of this practice of, like, being real with what we're feeling. So we need, like as a kindergarten for that practice, we need a place where there aren't obvious distractions. So that's why we're not laughing so much or, you know, shooting the breeze, talking about the Timberwolves or the, I was trying to remember the, what's the name of the women's basketball team. Lynx, thanks, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so so we want to create a ritual. We want to really honor. We want 
friends that also honor this practice of feeling into our lives. And if we're going to laugh, it, it will be when we're talking to these friends about the icy couch, about that smooth and hard rock, icy rock, hard place, that entanglement, right? That existential, uneasy, entangled, heavy, cold, flat, desert-like feeling, right? I mean, it could be any number of ways, that inner feeling. But the question is, do we trust it? Do we somehow sense that being close to that, staying close to that, fearlessly staying close to that is the way? And you know how easy it is. It's like we touch into it and then it's like we want to talk about it. We want to think about it. We don't just want to rest in that non-dualistic way, that non-cognitive way. Oh yeah, it feels like this. But that the image that Ayamendanandi, this well-known um, nun uh, teacher, Buddhist teacher, says, it's like that's the metaphor for our practice because a lot of times in our practice as we're doing really good work, it might get more and more wild, more and more difficult. It may seem on the surface like we're going backwards, that the amount of irritation, the amount of, excuse me, delusion, negativity, tightness, it might seem amplified, but it may be that we're actually just getting really comfortable in that icy, hard place at the center of things. We're learning to be real. We're learning to see things as they actually are like, this is the fruit of however many decades of being disconnected, complicit, in denial, negative. This is what that feels like. And it's so easy to to mistrust this work. Because one of my early mentors, teachers, way back in the middle of the 80s, he was an interesting guy. This is uh, with Swami Satchidananda's organization. He was a well-known Indian teacher, famous kind of guru type. If you saw the film on Woodstock, he was the uh, yogi who gave the peace invocation at Woodstock way back in the 60s kind of famous among celebrities. Carol King was a big devotee of Swami Satchidananda. And they still have a place called Yogaville in southern Virginia. Back in the 80s, he used to spend some time at. But anyway, Jagannath, this person, this teacher of mine, who's a really big guy, huge guy. In in this practice, you know, we, we did a lot of meditation, chanting and breathing practice, and a lot of hatha yoga. So it was sort of interesting having this really oversized person uh, being one of the main teachers, leaders. It was like, kind of made you step back. But he was a wise, wonderful person. And I remember once he said this, and Ayamenda Nandi says something similar in her article, The Dharma of Snow, about as we're making the effort to be on the icy couch and just feel, connect, start over, not second guess what we're feeling, it's like something is happening behind the scenes. That's what that geophysicist was talking about. Like our presence is like the seasonal change, the 
more radiant sunshine, the warmer temperatures, right? And something's happening, but we, we're unaware, right? It still feels like a mess, feeling into that space. It feels like death. As Ayamanda Nandi and many people say, it's exactly the feeling we don't want to feel. That's actually a useful instruction. Open to what you don't want to open to. Relax with what you don't want to relax with. Trust what don't what doesn't feel trustworthy. Be interested in what doesn't seem interesting. Right? It's really good advice. Because we can't trust our habit energies. Our habit energies are going to want to go to the surface, to more thinking about it, to our endless speculation about it. But then we stop doing the work. We're doing some other work, the work of avoidance. We're getting better at that stressful work of avoidance. We're putting down more snow, basically. But when we're right there with it, it's that soft radiance, right? Something's happening behind the scenes. I mean, this is really the essence of my practice. Like I, if someone asks me if, if they seem like they really want to know how I do my meditation practice, I generally will deflect, deflect. But if I get a sense that they have, they have some sense of their own heart and they really want a sincere, more nuanced answer to the question, how are you practicing these days, Mark? I might say, well, I'm, my theme for a long time is suffering and the end of suffering, but it's not philosophical at all. It's direct and immediate. I'm actually interested in suffering and the releasing of that suffering in real time, moment to moment, non-conceptually. Right? So it starts, that's why there's such a strong emphasis on whole body awareness because that's such a powerful gateway, that experience of embodiment, to this more subtle energetic place of the icy couch, holding and releasing, right? And learning to be in this subtle place and learning to trust that this willingness to be intimate, this willingness to relax, and even to feel that I belong here, even though there's so much humility is required because the experience isn't conceptual. I, I can't grasp it with an idea. It doesn't make sense cognitively. So I, when I'm practicing well, I don't bother to try to explain the practice to myself. I just learn to trust hanging out there, being aware there. And when I'm really there, intimate, then I glimpse the freedom that's there, the sort of releasing of the mass of snow, right? Like we sense, maybe a better word is we intuit what's happening there that is mostly, mostly we're unaware of, unconscious of. We taste the freedom that's already here because there's a natural process that's already afoot, already in motion that we can sense. But that really arises when the mind, when the heart's willing to persist in the letting go, letting go into the feeling, into the being in the middle of it. Not struggling, not being in a hurry, 
not being a clever Dharma practitioner with my Dharma moves, right? It's really letting all of that stuff die. And that's our practice. Now, it doesn't mean we don't need those clever Dharma practices to get to that. Like she mentions in this article, like we might need to name the thoughts. Oh yeah, that's just that thought. Oh yeah, that's just thinking. That's just planning. That's just trying to be a clever Dharma practitioner. Just to help settle into that initial experience of just feeling the body on the chair, on the cushion. Oh yeah. This is this is the beginning of that icy couch. Can I get relaxed here? Can I learn to trust this molded stone? Oh yeah, it does this feeling, this inner feeling, it does in a way feel perfectly formed, like I belong here. And you know how I know I belong here? Because every instinct is saying, run. (laughs) You know? It's like, that makes me really curious. Like, there's a lot of potency there. Like, this is like a new spiritual intuition where we're trusting places that are aren't familiar and we're and we're doing the opposite we don't trust we don't see value in places that are very familiar because the only reason they could be very familiar is their our own construction the conceptual thinking mind it's constructed that and so then of course it's familiar we feel like on the surface we feel cozy there but with some sensitivity, we realize we feel cozy because we made it up. Do you get this sometimes, like I was talking about early in our dreams, especially a little later in the morning if we're oversleeping, sleeping more than the body and the mind needs, the dreams are a little forced, and you can kind of sense them, taste them a little bit more. And you kind of, they're not as satisfying, right? Because you know the mind is working overtime to keep the mind entranced, lost in the dream, right? And it doesn't really work as well. Because the mind somehow realizes, as interesting as the dream might be on the surface, it's a little forced. It's a little like... I feel this way like with TV shows and movies sometimes, novels. Like the artists, the people behind the book or the show, they're working too hard trying too hard to make you like it or to pull up, pull on your heartstrings or to you know manipulate your emotions and it doesn't really work right even musicians you can kind of get that way like it's too it's not real enough they're not coming from a real place coming from a forced place so hopefully you're tracked down the article the icy couch like i said it's not too long i think you might enjoy it and there's a lot more, even though it's only a few pages, a lot more than I could bring up this morning. But the children will probably be here in a couple minutes, but we might have time for one person to share a little bit what uh, thoughts have come up or questions have come up from my comments this morning. Anything that someone would like to share with the group? Yeah, Julia, please start us off. Hi, uh, Julia. Um, I, I guess I want to make a comment about this because... Um, you talk sometimes about the drain pipe when we, when you get down something like this, you get down the drain pipe and you can't go back up again with the practice or like a porcupine down a drain pipe. Yeah, can't go backwards. Can't go backwards. 
and um, and the, that there should be a warning out in the lobby, like beware if you enter here. There's no going back or something like that. And um, and I I, I want to bring it up because it did happen to me in a really difficult way. And um, and I appreciate you talking about it this way as sowing the seeds and staying with the discomfort because. Um, it was a year after I started coming here and I had just finished the practice intensive in the summer and, um, I won't go into the details of it, but it was a quite difficult time. And, um, I was very sensitive. Suddenly I felt very overly sensitive to everything and there was a lot of suffering and we talked and um, the way out that you advised me was to get creative with my practice um, because I was having a hard time sitting and, uh, yeah, there was just a lot of discomfort, some depression. It was, it, was, it was a hard time. And so I did get creative with the way I was practicing. And the most helpful, I think, at that time in that creativeness was to go to a place of compassion, um, to really practice with... Um, even talking out loud to myself, you know, as I was practicing, and it kind of got me through that. So I, I just, um, and it a little bit relates to what Shelley was talking about last week around what does this body need at this particular moment? And often when I ask that question to myself, it is compassion, it's self-compassion. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because it's real. Yeah, thanks, Julia. And that's the flavor of being with the icy couch. There's no way to approach the icy couch without compassion. Otherwise, it will be, you know, will come from this idea that I'm going to fix this, and uh, it will win. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Julia. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs. Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.